around. All right. So, Isaiah, I'm going to be reading the passage, but it's amazing. It's amazing how God has, uh, has laid out his word in such, with such symmetry. You know, there's one way of thinking, a couple of ways at least, the thinking of Isaiah's place. It's almost like a little Bible. 66 chapters, 66 books in the Bible. 30, uh, 39 uh, books in the Old Testament, and we have a movement through the book of Isaiah, 39 chapters, and then the last 27, 27 in the New Testament. And then when you get into Isaiah itself, you have a layout where it builds, as we'll see, we, it builds on what's preceded it with regarding guarding the Messiah in these uh, servant songs in 42 and 49 and 50. And then we come and we land on Isaiah 53. It's actually, it's the middle, it's the, in the middle section, you know, this latter part of Isaiah is all about deliverance from chapter 40 to the end of the book. And Israel was in, in dire straits. There had... The northern tribes had suffered tremendously because of their, it was covenant chastening and God disciplined and the Assyrians came and took those northern ten tribes away off into foreign lands and, and it was a brutal, horrible time, a nightmare. And then in, in the 40th chapter, God begins a very pronounced emphasis for Israel on, through the prophet on comfort ye, comfort ye my people. And then 40 through the end of the book, you have this comforting process. There is, first of all, you have in chapters 40 through 48, a, a deliverance, a deliverance is coming from Babylon. Captivity, it's coming. Take heart. And then the chapters move in chapters 49 through 57. Well, at the very heart of it is he's going to deliver because he delivers you there, but he's going to deliver from sin. That's the reason why you're plagued with all these hardships and why you've had just social upheaval and disintegration as a, as a nation. And it is because of sin. And so 49 down through, or excuse me, 49 through 57. And in the center of that is Isaiah 53 sitting there. And in the center of Isaiah 53 is verse 5. You couldn't ask for a better place setting. <laughs> And the, the symmetry is beautiful, both theologically and in a literary way. We can see that. And then the latter part of Isaiah, 58 through 66, then you get into this expanded view of the future, and there will be deliverance from everything that sin has polluted and tainted. Everything. So it's a deliverance, deliverance, deliverance. But the center of it all is that your social problems come as a result of your heart problems. And the need for repentance and the need to see full face in full view in all his glory, the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what we have here in this chapter. One a couple of other things. We're still circling over top of it. And we're going to read it. But you want to notice that this is, uh, some people want to put the Old Testament in kind of a uh, back seat as if maybe we don't even need it. How dare you say or think such a thing? Do you know what the Bible of Jesus was? It was the Old Testament. That was his Bible. And 
coming on to this chapter of Isaiah 53, the New Testament, let me show you the place. I won't turn there, but I'll tell you the places. We're drawn, the, our attention is drawn to Isaiah 53 through Matthew 8, John 12, Acts 8, Romans 10, Romans 15, 1 Peter 2. And it's like saying, look back, look back, look back. And not just look back. There are things in Isaiah 53 regarding the person work of Christ that aren't in the New Testament. It's amazing. And then when you get into Isaiah, here is how it builds toward the 53rd chapter. Go all the way back to Genesis 3 and verse 15. On the sin of Adam and Eve, the Lord promised that there would be one day the crushing of the head of the serpent. And then as it moves along into, into Genesis 49, through Shiloh, who will come? And then in Numbers 24, through the mouth of Balaam, a bad prophet, a prophecy of coming Messiah. And then you get into Samuel, 1 Samuel in chapter 7, and you have the promise of the coming of the greater son of David, the Lord Jesus Christ, in all those wonderful parts of, portions of the Davidic covenant. Then in Psalm 2, my son, kiss the son. And Psalm 2 speaks of this coming one delivering Israel. And in Psalm 72, that he will reign over all of the earth. And then in Psalm 110, the Lord said to my Lord, Jesus goes to Psalm 110 to speak to the, his critics regarding his own presence with the Father and what he was doing to reveal the Father. And then when you get into Isaiah, Isaiah 4, you get a hint of this coming Messiah. Messiah. Then in Isaiah 7, he says, he's going to be born of a virgin. And then in Isaiah 9, unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. Then you get into Isaiah 11, and you see that this world is going to be turned upside down in terms of its prosperity, and the curse is going to be partially lifted, and there will be this wonderful kingdom where the Messiah will rule and reign over it. And then we will get into, as we've seen, we get into those servant songs, just jewels all their own as they set forth the coming Messiah. And then we come to Isaiah. Actually, Isaiah 53 begins in chapter 40, uh, 52 and in verse 12. So that's where we're going. Now, with that said, I'm going to read Isaiah 53. Well, starting, as I said, with verse, it's going to be verse 13 of chapter 52. Now, I'm going to read, I'm going to explain something. So when you're looking at the text, and we're going to be going through carefully but speedily through the text of this entire 15 verses, that's all. <laughs> but what verses? They are loaded, loaded, loaded with wonderful truth regarding the reality of the person and work of Jesus Christ. So we're going to begin at chapter 52 and verse 13. I'm going to be reading from the New English translation. I've just compared it with some others, and I think it has a little sparkle where it needs to be sparkling, and it says things that I think are a little bit more accurate and related to the Hebrew text. But I'm going then to be working through it as we go through the New American Standard Version. You probably have an English Standard Version or something like that. I hope all that doesn't confuse you. It's all the Word of God, and it speaks clearly to us. So are you with me? I'm going to begin chapter 52 and verse 13. Look, my servant 
my servant will succeed. He will be elevated, lifted high, and greatly exalted, just as many were horrified by the sight of you. He was so disfigured, he no longer looked like a man. His form was so marred, he no longer, longer looked human. So now, he will startle many nations. Kings will be shocked by his exaltation, for they will witness something announced to them. They will understand something they had not heard about. Who would have believed what we just heard? When the Lord's power revealed through him, when was the Lord's power revealed through him? He sprouted up like a twig before God, like a root out of parched soil. He had no stately form or majesty that might catch our attention, no special appearance that we should want to follow him. He was despised and rejected by people, one who experienced pain and was acquainted with illness. People hid their faces from him. He was despised and he was considered insignificant, but he lifted up our illnesses. He carried our pain. Even though we thought he was being punished, attacked by God, and afflicted for something he had done. He was wounded because of our rebellious deeds, crushed because of our sins. He endured punishment that made us well. Because of his wounds, we have been healed. All of us had wandered off like sheep. Each of us had strayed off on his own path. But the Lord caused the sin of all of us to attack him. He was treated harshly and afflicted, but he did not even open his mouth. Like a lamb led to the slaughtering block, like a sheep silent before her shearers, he did not even open his mouth. He was led away after an unjust trial, but who even cared? Indeed, he was cut off from the land of the living. Because of the rebellion of his own people, he was wounded. They intended to bury him with criminals, but he ended up in a rich man's tomb because he had committed no violent deeds, nor had he spoken deceitfully. Though the Lord desired to crush him and make him ill, once restitution is made, he will see his descendants and enjoy long life. And the Lord's purpose will be accomplished through him. Having suffered, he will reflect on his work. He will be satisfied when he understands what he has done. My servant will acquit many, for he carried their sins. So I will assign him a portion with the multitudes. He will divide the spoils of victory with the powerful, because he willingly submitted to death and was numbered with the rebels when he lifted up the sin of many and intervened on behalf of the rebels. Isn't that magnificent? Now let's consider some things here. Here's where we must go. What we're told immediately is that 
He says, behold, just the first word of verse 13 of chapter 52. Behold. That's a little bit weak. <laughs> the Hebrew, it's like, look, see. Come on, don't be distracted. Get your mind on what he is about to say. Very dramatic word that he uses here. And there are three issues that you need to keep in mind now as we move right on through this section of Isaiah. That Israel suffered because of her rebellion against God. That's the problem. That's what has to be addressed. She had violated the covenant and reaped a harvest of pain and misery. Israel suffered because of her sin. Israel needed a deliverer. She could not save herself. Social problems. Social problems always find their source in the sinful human heart. Oh, we're missing this side point here. We're missing this in our own nation. We're looking everywhere. We're looking for political answers. We're looking for sociological answers. Maybe even if we could find some medical answer to the human condition. If we could just examine the brains of evildoers and we could find out what that part of the brain is that makes people be mass murderers and do horrendous things. Maybe we can do something. Oh, if we can just get into the DNA. Oh, we can go places. Oh, science can take us. Ah, the joke's on us. The problem is in the human heart, the sinful human heart. And that's why this passage in Isaiah 53 is so so significant. So Israel needed a deliverer. Evil's power, where does it, from which it, it springs from human depravity. And then thirdly, the suffering of God's servant will lead to exaltation and glory. Who is this servant that we've tracked now through these three previous servant songs? His name is not given. There's a bit of a conundrum here, puzzling. He's going to succeed. He is not a failure. You read this and on the surface of it, you think, he was a failure. No, he wasn't. He's going to be humiliated. He's going to be rejected. He, is he a king or is he a criminal? Honored and loved, hated and despised. How can both be true? A divinely designed paradox. Isaiah begins with this final picture of the servant with this enigma. Who is he? We can see more clearly. And so the outburst comes, behold, look at my servant. Now as we'll go through this, we have to note something perhaps, maybe you've noticed this or have come been aware of this. This passage in Isaiah is avoided generally within the Jewish community in the synagogues, our friends down the street, when they read through Isaiah 53, quite often they're steered around Isaiah 53. And I've read through the Jewish study Bible. It's not a evangelical study Bible, it's the Jewish study Bible. I went and read through again all the notes on Isaiah 50 to 12 through the end of the 53rd chapter. And it takes you off in directions away from the obvious. They say, oh, this is the description of the suffering Israel. That can't be. 
Can I show you real quickly why that can't be? Look in chapter 49. Let's do that. Let's get this, let's get this part settled and then we can move along. In chapter 49 of Isaiah, <clears throat> notice that he says, But I said, I have toiled in vain. And I've spent my strength. That's not the passage I wanted. I wanted to, to go down to verse 5 is where I want to land. Verse 3. 3 and 5. He said to me, are, you are my servant Israel, in whom I will show my glory. Well, he was, you know, God has three servants. Get this. Three servants are mentioned in Isaiah. You had a servant who has already been mentioned, a Messiah, named Cyrus, who was going to give the green light and enable Israel to leave Babylon, to leave and to go back to the land. There was a deliverer, there was a Messiah in the universal kingdom of God, Cyrus, and then there was Israel, in a sense, a Messiah, in that it was in Israel where the servant will come, from whom the, Israel, uh, the servant will come. And so now, but I want to track you over from verse 3 to look at verse 5, Isaiah 49. And now says the Lord, who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him. How can this be Israel if it's going to, Jacob is going to be brought back to him in order that Israel might be gathered to him? We'll let that sit for a while and soak in my minds that we're talking about the person of Christ here in Isaiah 53. Oh, pray for our Jewish friends that there will be an attraction to it. You know, maybe it could be. It's, it's like children when you say, hey, you're not to go there. You're not, don't do that. And what do you do? You stir up well. Why? There have been Jews who have come to this passage and read it. And the Spirit of God worked in a supernatural, powerful, supernatural way and showed them that this was the picture of the Messiah, the, the one that for whom they, they looked and have come to, to know him as their own personal Savior and Messiah. Now, we're going to see something in Isaiah 53, 8 that will further that point that this is speaking not of the nation, but this is speaking of the person. Now, here's how it's going to develop. Just, you know, this is almost like a systematic theology. This is laid out so well. Just do this. We're going to run. We're going to just kind of get in a helicopter and go over it for a second. What you have at the very beginning is the setting of Isaiah 53 in the opening verses. And he sets the table. The mystery of God's servant is laid out. He's, he succeeds. He succeeds. And then you come down to verses 1 to 3. The rejection of the Lord's Messiah, the servant. And then in verses 4 through 6, the atonement of the servant. And then in verses 7 through 9, the submission of the servant. And then in verses 10 to 12, the uh, exaltation of the servant. So it's laid out, and some have even, I don't have time to pursue this, have shown a striking similarity of these five stanzas to the Torah, the five Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And if you put those five books from the Torah down before you, and understand their place in the canon of Scripture, and then look at these five stanzas, you'll say, uh-huh, interesting. 
Is there perhaps some divine design in that symmetry in Scripture? Don't have time to go for that any further. But let's look immediately and see what this opening statement is. The servant of God is destined for exaltation. This is really a success story. And what you have, if you want to notice the tenses here, the future, the future, the past, and the present, excuse me, future, past, and future, are used in these three verses. And here is the servant. He will be a success in carrying out the will of God. Verse 13, when in which he says that, Behold, my servant will prosper. That's the way the, the New American Standard, that's, uh, it's not like he's going to, you know, get, get rich, uh, be super healthy, you know, the thoughts we attach to prosperity. He will succeed is the word. Uh, the word here in the Hebrew is sakal. He's going to be wise. And wisdom is that he will see what has to be done and he will do it according to God's infinite mind and wisdom. So the servant will triumph. And if you look in, those, uh, look in verse 13, you will see that there are three, three ways in which he's successful. First of all, there is his resurrection. Then there is his ascension. And then his exaltation. All of that in that 13th verse. So at the outset, we're given the sum summary of how successful he is. Calvary was a success. It was not a failure. I can pause here and just say this as an aside. I, crucifixes, I know they're a cross is a difference. A crucifix, you see the person of Christ hanging uh, on a, a metal object, perhaps some gold or whatever. And then there are crosses that are worn around the neck. But I want to just make sure we understand that we are not going around with a symbol of, of defeat. And we're, I don't know how you would wear something, an empty tomb around your neck. But it's the success of the Messiah. The cross was a success. I'm not diminishing that. But that's not the whole story in that. So it is that Jesus is no longer in the agonies that he had to endure. So the servant will not fail. Though sin-blinded men, they will think he's a failure. They thought he was a failure. They think he's a failure. Not at all. And the servant is Christ. This is not Israel. I've tried to point this out. And while I'm there, let me just say one other thing about this fact that he is the servant, Jesus Christ, and not Israel. If you look in verse 8 of 53, just for a moment. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living? For the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due. You see the distinction here between, here is the, here's the servant and there, is though, there are those who were guilty and who needed the, the atoning work of this Messiah, the servant, to deliver them. This is, note that, verse, 58, verse 8 of chapter 53. So, he will experience disfigurement. See in verse 14. This is the suffering servant. In, who is this? His appearance was disfigured by, beyond human recognition. 
the, the spirit, physical and spiritual sufferings on the cross were beyond anything that we can imagine. And you can see through this the cost of redemption. You know, it occurs to me that, you know, when Pilate asked for Jesus to be brought forth, this often comes up in, in uh, recounting of, of this at Easter time. And he says before them all, behold, the man. You know why he said that? After he had been beaten, beaten to a bloody pulp, I don't know if you've ever seen anyone who has been beaten severely. I've seen a couple of pictures. I saw one of someone. It was, it was not pretty. And, and I knew the, knew the person, two of them. And they had been beaten and the face was so swollen and the bruises were so deep. The disfigurement was so much. You couldn't recognize the person. I think that what Pilate was saying there in John in 19 in verse 5, behold the man. After all that had gone forth, and Pilate wanted to wash his hands of the whole situation. They said, some were saying, this is the king of the Jews. They say, no, he's not. And then he gets the last word. He thinks, behold the man. Look at this one. Yeah, your king, the one who is spoken of so highly and vaunted as what the son of God. Behold the man. You would hardly have recognized him and say, ooh not ours so this passage anticipates that and so you know you think about what our crucified savior what he suffered uh, I, I have a problem with these movies you know whether it's the, the passion of Christ or whatever it is I just want to get this off my chest and say one thing further about these movies that come out. And now we've got this ongoing series, The Chosen. I've had occasion recently to be asked questions about it and, you know, hey, it's this and that and the other. Uh, I don't want to ride that horse very far down the trail, but I will just tell you this much. If you really want to know about Jesus Christ and not depend on the imagination of some script writer, if you really want to know why don't you start with Isaiah 53? Read through it and meditate on it. Let your tears fall as you read through this and see what was really involved. And because so often in presentations that are made of the death of Christ, you get caught up in the emotion of seeing the physical suffering. Understandable. But all oh, that does not come near going to what is the depth of the situation. Namely, that when he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me and it was because of our sin that he was hanging on that cross he was not suffering physical pain just to work off something in some physical redemptive way not at all all right back to the passage and then you notice he's going to astonish kings and nations according to verse 15 it says that thus he will sprinkle i think that would come through better i've read this carefully and looking at the hebrew of this word sprinkle uh, this word uh, nazah I think it comes across better as startle it's going to startle them like the point being what this was the one who so disfigured that we didn't recognize him he will startle he said many nations kings will shut their mouths on account of him for what has not been told them they will see and what they had not heard they will understand and the, the point of this being that, that the kings of this world are dumbfounded. 
that every human mouth will be hushed into guilty silence when? When? Before the final judgment. And I say, oh, did we ever get it wrong? This one disfigured, oh, in such a horrible way. So, as one writer has put it, that they are struck dumb in speechless astonishment at one so suddenly brought out of the depths and lifted up to such great height, elevated and promoted after he had been beaten down and beaten to a bloody pulp. And then with a reading of Psalm 2 and Revelation 19, it explains that kings will tremble at his second coming. There is, if you want to know where the great arc of history is going? Oh, the especially progressive so-called like the great arc of history get on the right side of history don't be on the wrong side of history as a hollow impotent words for the right side of history is to have seen Jesus Christ for who he was hanging on that tree and to put your faith and trust in him and then at that time when he comes and his eyes are blazing fire with the sword proceeding from his mouth and it's the time for judgment and reckoning that's where the old arc of history comes down in final justice and judgment. Well, can this servant be the same man? That's the way this whole thing starts out. The world will have gotten it all wrong. All human learning and philosophical systems, the world views it will be proven to be a colossal fable. Failure, absolutely failure in understanding who Christ was. Then you can watch him now as he goes on into 53 in the second stanza where now he presents a question. And what is the question? Who has believed our message? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Why was the fatal stumbling block to the Jewish leaders, why was he, what was the stumbling block? Well, the stanza, as I said, begins with a question. He's spoken of as God's arm, God's power, strength, the arm, the biceps. Oh, the football players like to cross the goal line and then kind of hunch over and just show you their biceps. <laughs> this is power in the work of Jesus Christ and the one who would believe that this one, who would you have believed that this could have been God's arm? Is this the one who is flexing his muscle? Well, yes, in this sense it was. They expected the king. Who would have expected the king of kings to have been sweeping the floor in a village workshop? <laughs> who is it that asked two questions? It is the future confession of Israel's believing remnant that's here. This is who asked the question. Who's believed our report? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? The Messiah is different from what they had expected. So few. And you know, when you consider the millions in Judaism, and yet only a remnant will look, and this is speaking out from the mouth of the remnant in the second coming of Christ in the tribulation, and that remnant will say, ah, oh, who would have believed? The unbelief of his people is staggering. The lowliness of the servant. Now we have verse 2, track him that Israel's final repentance will be demonstrated in recognition of who the servant really was. He grew up before him like a tender shoot, like a root out of parched ground. Who would have thought that such a one would come from this 
dusty, dirty little city, kind of a, some have made the argument this kind of a red light district as it was on the periphery of, the, of, of Judah. And who would have thought so? And so here is this confession. Franz Dalich, who has a, uh, those who go to real great lengths to study the Old Testament are familiar with Kyle and Dalich, a famous, I had a set, I think I put it in the library. Uh, no, I think I've kept it. Oh, I'm glad I kept it. A whole set, and it's a commentary in the Old Testament. Dalich, a Jew, is converted. And he speaks of this, this chapter, that it will, will not receive its complete historical fulfillment until Israel's remnant acknowledges with deep remorse that the Gentiles accepted their own Messiah before they did. Who? Who? So here is Israel's response to the Messiah. And he gives a summary here. Who would have thought it? We've gone through this in some of the other servant songs. Jesus' brothers, they misunderstood him. Some of the people said of Jesus that he was just, he was just a good man. That's all he was, thinking, trying to throw him a bouquet. Others said he was a con artist. If you look in John chapter 7, you'll see these things coming to the surface. The Jewish leaders couldn't understand where he had received his education, this condescending view of him. And then some, when you go on again back in John 7 to see this, some even said that he had a demon and accused him of being out of his mind. So the Jewish leaders of Jesus' day, they were looking for political restoration. You can see down through verse 3, he says he was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, like one from whom men had the face. He was, for, rep, for repetition here, for emphasis sake, he was despised and we did not esteem him. And that, oh, they avoided facing the reality of who Jesus Messiah, God's servant, really was. And so, here is, tasted the pain of rejection. Yeah, rejection's an awful thing, isn't it? You ever been rejected? Rejected by somebody you love? I don't know that any emotional wound can go much more deeply than that. Some people live with it their entire lives, that sense of rejection. Jesus Christ lived with that rejection, and he died being rejected, but it was a sanctified rejection because it was for the purpose of bearing our sin, and it was our guilt that he was bearing that he was rejected. And so Jesus had to live his entire life misunderstood. And so the, the servant song then moves to the next, to the third stanza. Look in verses 4 to 6. The servant of God will make a substitutionary atonement. This is ground zero right here, folks, in this systematic theology that's laid out here in these five stanzas. Here we are. The sufferings of Jesus are not as they seem to be. You know, we have a little Old Testament hint at this kind of thing, don't we, in Job? What did Job's friends think of Job's suffering? You're getting your licks because you deserved it. You've done something. And they spend how many chapters going through? Job, come on, fess up. You, you displeased God. You sinned. You did something wrong. That's why you're getting these, this licking. That's why you're going through pain and suffering. And it was just what you deserved. Well, the servant was considered to be under God's curse but he was standing in our place. And the substitutionary death of Jesus Christ, it was violent and painful. Look at his language here. He says, surely our griefs he himself bore. Our sorrows he carried. Uh, that's 
the carry there, the uh, saval in the Hebrew, saval. And it means to carry a heavy load. Just take these two words that are used here, transgressions and the word iniquities. First of all, the word transgressions. You understand a transgression. You step over the line, a boundary. What do you hear? He's describing our rebellion. What do you hear? Here is an MRI on our own human hearts. It's not pretty. Won't come out smiling after this examination. The ways in which we break God's law. Specific ways, particular ways. That's transgressions. Jesus was pierced in specific ways for my sins. Remember that time that you let it fly and you said what you thought and you were mad and you just told them what you thought and you used words and language and you wished that you'd call those back. Jesus was pierced through for, those sin, for that sin. You remember that immorality that you would, oh, that immorality that you indulge in, you wish, oh, I wish I could forget, I wish I could forget that. Jesus Christ was pierced through for it, our sins. So the substitutionary death of Jesus Christ, what it did was bring the infinite weight of accumulated guilt of sinners crushing down on him. That's what he's describing here. This word iniquities, look at that term. It's important here to what he's, how he's describing this. And that he was crushed for our iniquities. The idea. The sinful is describing the sinful traits within us. You know, sin really goes deep and wide in our hearts. We, I think, stay on the surface of it uh, more than we should. Not to say that we just stand and look down into the sewage of our souls. But I will tell you this, that it's not pretty down there what we're capable of in iniquities. I'm a selfish person. Oh, glad to hear that, preacher. Yeah, what about you? Are you a selfish person? We're all selfish people. Envy, it, it's part of my very character. It's part of your very character. If you go down the list, we could really get down and dirty on this. We wouldn't feel too good after we went through all the possibilities. Those twisted and ugly things that are part of me, he was crushed for those things. Crushed. That's why he was dying. And so the substitutionary death, it was of Jesus the servant. What does it bring? Look a little further with me down to the fact that he says that the chastening of our well-being fell upon him as a substitute. And by his scourging, his wounds, we're healed. What is he saying? Oh, my, what some have done. They could even be brothers and sisters in Christ, but some who want to tell us that we have the complete, the complete healing guaranteed in the atonement, and all we need to do is just claim it, name it, and claim it. That's not what he is saying here. This is brought up, this passage is quoted over in Matthew chapter 8, things verse 17. What Jesus was doing in his healing ministry was not to, he did not come to heal everybody, though he probably healed in the neighborhood hundreds of thousands of people. But he was using these healing experiences, episodes, these, these startling uh, moments of transformation from death to life in some cases, raising the dead and healing leprosy and the blind and the deaf and demon-possessed to give evidence of the power that he has to forgive sin. If he can do this, he can forgive sin. 
for he deals with the maladies of sin, the consequences of sin, the human physical condition. This is what he, he does to heal the soul and forgive. That's what he's saying. So it is this, I read this somewhere, by his wounds and scourging we're healed. Now Jesus did, yeah, I'm going to read this. This was one I picked up. Now Jesus did not come to the world to show men how to cure sickness without medicine, as some cults claim but rather to demonstrate by his healing of men's bodies that he was a competent, he was competent to heal men's souls. So we fall ill in many ways, but that's all is symptomatic of the greatest illness of all, namely the sin-sick soul that we have, and Christ was crushed for that. Now come with me to the next, to the fourth stanza here, in verses 7 through 9. The servant of God will submit to undeserved suffering. The injustice the servant experienced, all that the servant had to lose in order to carry out his work. That's what's the point here. You know, a question arises. Was Jesus forced to carry the cross against his will? Was he a victim? Oh my, this is a special status today, isn't it? Just to get into the status of being a victim. But it wants to be a victim in some way or another. If you just are even a casual listener, you can pick this up from people that uh, tuned in on a certain station the other day and a person was being interviewed and they were going through their childhood and how they'd been raised and so forth. Well, the whole story was I was a victim too and they elicited the sympathy that uh, maybe empathy went through the childhood and this and that and the other. I'm not doubting, I'm not denying the fact that we go through some ex terrible experiences and get wounded in many different ways, physically, emotionally, and spiritually, we get wounded. But, you know, it's an awful way to live, to see oneself as a card-carrying victim. It's diminishing. Jesus Christ was not a victim. He gave himself up. Who, Jesus said this in John 19, who would have no, you would have no authority over me unless it had been given you from above. So he was no victim. And notice the way in which he carried out this, his giving himself voluntarily as our substitute, our sin bearer. Take notice of the gentleness and silence of the sufferer. See verse seven, he was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he did not open his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. No complaint, not fear, not self-pity. Now, pause. You think, well, didn't Jesus say something here and there? He was questioned. He did give a few answers. He did cry out on the cross. He did utter some words. But when you look closely at what Jesus said and didn't say in those circumstances, I'm told, I've read, I've never had a pet lamb. But when lambs go in for their slaughter, say in the Passover and such, lambs go in silently. They don't know what they're going into. And Jesus went into this. He knew, he knew what was coming. And he took it. And so he suffered voluntarily and patiently. And we're, we're not to feel sorry for Jesus. This is why I flinch a little bit when I look at crucifixes. Is that to elicit just Feel sorry for Jesus? No. If you want to feel sorry for someone, we should feel sorry for ourselves. Why? For our sin. Our sin. That's what put him there. 
And so observe the thoughtlessness of that generation too in verse 8. You see that? It says, by oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living? You know why that was such a disastrous thing? <clears throat> for the Jew to be cut off and to die. You, this comes through in your Old Testament. You have to appreciate this. You think, well, how come that those in the Old Testament didn't revel more in being absent in the bodies to be present with the Lord? Why did they see that death was such a tragedy to be cut off? They couldn't praise God anymore. Language like that, you've seen it in the Psalms? Because in the system of theocracy that God had designed for his people, the promise of the land and their property and prosperity in the future was a sign of obedience to the covenant. And it was indication that they were pleasing God and he was provided. They wanted to stay on and see their posterity, their children and their grandchildren, and fully possess the land that had been allocated to them. So to be cut off from that, oh, it would have been, it wasn't deficiency so much in their theology, it was a deficiency in their understanding of the depths and lengths to which one goes in life and death. And he was cut off of the land for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due for Israel. This is not, here, here's the verse. The Messiah is the servant. The Messiah, not Israel. And so this thoughtlessness of his generation, his death was undeserved. It was violent. It was an atonement by substitution. He went through six illegal trials. Oh, pray for our Jewish friends and anyone for that matter. But our Jewish friends, see, look back and see how Jesus was treated illegally. Now, the church went crazy and wrong with this. And sadly, at the hands of some early theologians in the church and gave birth to anti-Semitism to blame the Jews. This is not blaming the Jews. It's just to see that it was their sin and our sin and their sin and those illegal trials was emblematic of our own sin in rejecting him and counting him worthless and not worth the time of day. The same is true for all. That here was the depth to which human beings would go to demonstrate their indifference to who the Messiah really was. That what, is, what was happening, that he was dying for our sins. And then notice in verse 9, this, uh, the disgrace of his death is mentioned here. He, his grave was assigned with the wicked men. Now, you don't find this in the New Testament. You go back from the New to here to get some, here's one of those, um, one of those pieces of, uh, of information that we get here and not in the New Testament. He was with a rich man in his death. Well, Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea, they show up and they had been silent in the Sanhedrin, but they show up to give him a decent burial. And so what comes through here is that it was the servant, was, he was delivered from a shameful burial. He was actually put in this burial plot reserved for the wealthy. And so here is the servant. The disposal of his body had nothing to do with the atonement. The work was done. It was finished. It was finished. Now, notice in the fifth stanza, verses 10 through 12. In this stanza, we get now some retrospect, the exaltation. The servant of God will be exalted by the Father. And here is the enigma of this final, of this servant song. It's begun to, it's answered in this section. Now it's going to come into sharp focus. Look, look carefully. Why was a servant's suffering a successful thing? 
It was because he was bearing sin. That's the reason. That's the reason. Oh, we just don't want to admit it, don't want to see it, don't want to acknowledge it. It's because of sin. Why is the city in such distress? Why is there human trafficking? Why is there such racism? Why is there such fraud and cheating and rape and murder? Why is there rioting and looting? Why are people hit and runs? People hit somebody, knock them over and kill them and go and run and hide. Why, 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 why? We're sinners deep down inside. We're guilty before God and Jesus was successful because he was bearing our sin. Now let's track it. Let's track it here in closing. The servant's work was rewarded, verse 10. But he says, but the Lord was pleased to crush him. Don't get distracted by that word pleased. It wasn't that God was enjoying some kind of uh, uh, depraved, God forbid, some pleasure in it. It says, when it says it was his will, it was his desired will. That's what was going on here. To crush him, putting him to grief, he will render himself as a guilt offering. Here's what he's saying. That in what sense was God the Father pleased with the servant's death? The purpose of God was accomplished. It was accomplished. Why did the Father crush the Son? Because he loved him. It's the worst kind of pain. What had God, has God done in the death of his servant about our guilt? Jesus Christ paid the damages. You know what's interesting here? A special, a special note. I, I've looked at this afresh and I can see this, this word guilt offering. So the Hebrew word is the word asham. Asham. In the sacrificial system are five offerings. There was the burnt offering, it was total dedication. Peace offering, there was the uh, restoration of fellowship. There was a meal offering, that's dedication of one's life. The fourth, there was a sin offering. That was where the animal was offered. And then there was this trespass offering. That was to compensate for losses. You see, you had an offering that took care of just the general sinful condition. But what about the residue of sin? For example, in the law of the Old Testament, if you had stolen a man's five sheep, you had to make restitution. You had to give him back the five plus the one. So you had 120% was the 20% the 20 was added on. The point that he's making here with this guilt offering is that Jesus Christ not only paid everything, but every last thing. Maybe we could be tempted to think, well, you know, what if I get to that point at the end of it all and I come before God and say, oh, no, oh, no, there was something I has not come to my mind. I'm just not bringing to pass. I am cooked. I'm done. I'm toast. I'm in the weeds. I'm through. Oh, no, 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 no. All the damages have been paid. Jesus paid the total price. He picked up the tab for everything, everything, as I come to him and receive the forgiveness that he offers through faith in him. It's taken care of, taken care of. Oh, dear friend, don't worry and wander around in fear thinking that, oh, there would be something that could be overlooked. Here's what he's saying, is that the sin debt that we owe to God, Jesus paid the debt we didn't owe because we had a debt we couldn't pay. 
and though his, his, his days, though his days were cut off, but his days will be prolonged. What does that tell you in this verse? That's a hint. Mom, more than a hint. It's the resurrection. His days will be prolonged. I guess they will. You'll never die again. <laughs> does, that, does that count for being prolonged? Here's the resurrection. Then this, the servant knew that he would never have to die again. Oh, we have loved ones who knew the Lord and are in his presence and part of the pleasure they're present in, before God and know they'll never have to die again. And when we get there, we'll never have to go through the heart-wrenching wrenching experiences of funerals. You can say what you want to about funerals, but you know, death is an enemy. And we're not celebrating death. We're celebrating the power over death, which was won in the resurrection of Christ. This is what he's saying. We don't have time to go through everything here, but it's interesting, those three, his offspring. You know, you want to know where you are in Isaiah 53? Huh? Huh? Look. See it? Look. Look. Look in this. He says he will see his offspring. You know who that is? That's you if you're in Christ. That's you. That's right. You're there. Put a little smiley face by that. <laughs> You're there. And prolong his days. And the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. And then as he comes along in verse 11, this righteousness for the sinner was provided by the servant. Don't have time to really squeeze that one hard. But if you will notice this much about it, look, I want to point out a couple of things in the text. As a result of the anguish of his soul, the misery, absolute misery, he will see it and be satisfied. And by his is, the, is Christ, he will see that he has accomplished what he came to do. This is retrospect. This is looking back. Jesus Christ is satisfied. Aren't you thankful for that? He's satisfied with what he did. It's taken care of. You're converted and you believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. And your sins were forgiven because of Christ paid the debt. If Jesus is satisfied... Shouldn't you and I? And, and then by his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant will justify the many. I love this in the Hebrew here. This word, the righteous word, the righteous one, sadiq. They're put right next to one another in the sentence. I don't, that wouldn't stack up real good in an English uh, diagrammatical process. But the word righteous one and justifier are right next to them, kind of cozy up to one another because they're so vitally connected like Siamese twins almost. And the many, who are the many? Ah, ah not all humanity. No. Only the many who put their trust in him and who receive this righteousness that's in Christ that he alone provides, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, he will allow him a portion with the great. Here it is, the grand finale, the grand finale. The father, he, will earn a portion with the great, and he is going to be with the saints of all the ages. I can't fathom that. I try to think about that sometimes. Matter of fact, more than just sometimes. <laughs> Of all the people, more people I have known in my life who are believers, they're dead. They're gone. And I think about them. Those that I've never met as well, millions. How can we handle that? I'll know this. God's got it all taken care of. And we've got eternity to work that out. Because we don't become omniscient and omnipresent. Okay, I wandered off a bit. I'm saying he will divide the booty with the strong. 
that because he poured out himself to death, he was numbered. Now he summarizes this. He was numbered with the transgressors and he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. So here it is. The reign of the servant is declared the fruit of his victory. And we reign and rule with him because of what he's done in his sacrifice. And when will this come to pass? All this will come to pass at the second coming. And God's servant will be magnificent, fully exalted, exalted, exalted. And consider all that the servant has gained. He's gained his glory. He's gained us. You know, folks, uh, it's flu season. I know some of you said, well, we shouldn't get vaccinated and shouldn't get shots. All right, I'll leave you with your conviction. All right, if you'll just leave me with what I choose to do, okay. We still be friends, but I'll tell you this. There is, there is a shot that we all need. You know what? It's the shot of the forgiveness of God and eternal life in Jesus Christ. And if you don't get it, you don't get into God's presence. You don't get into heaven. And so that it's available. It's, hey, listen, it's the ultimate medicine. <laughs> it's the ultimate medicine that you need and I need to pass through the gates of glory as we cross the bridge. Oh, and how will we cross the bridge? I don't know. I know somehow they're crossing it. We know how, how Rudy crossed it recently. We just figured today's his birthday. And it's uh, Carol and Glenn here to remind us of that. Uh, and uh, somebody else there next to him, I can't see who that is. <laughs> and uh, Kylie, Kylie, oh, Kylie, the Wednesday girl. <laughs> I've heard Kylie's name often. How would it, today's his birthday. Celebrating, you know why? Because he got the shot. You know what the shot was? Got the medicine. And then the forgiveness and God's incomparable gift of his son, Jesus Christ, who bore our sins on the cross. That's why he's there. He's not there. Hal's not there, nor anyone there who is, uh, who is Christ is not there because of some good deeds. How, how uh, kind or generous or helpful or church member or baptized or whatever or how many communions they've had it is because of the finished work of Jesus Christ that's why we're there let's bow in prayer and thank God for this thank you our Lord our God for all that you've done for us in Christ Jesus thank you thank you thank you Lord for the full pardon that's available and Lord if there's a man or a woman boy or girl here today who has never reached out with a hand of empty hand of the heart and faith to receive forgiveness in Christ, may this be that day. Thank you, Lord, for the gift of your Son. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen.